to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Today's scripture lesson comes from Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. And this is a version from Dr. Will Gaffney from her Women's Bible Lectionary. Now the messenger of the all-seeing God found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, and the spring was on the way to Shur. And the messenger said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarah, from where have you come and where are you going? And she said, from my mistress Sarah am I fleeing. The messenger of the inscrutable God said to her, return to your mistress and subject yourself to her. The messenger of the wellspring of life said to Hagar, greatly will I multiply your seed so they cannot be counted for multitude. Then the messenger of the fount of life said to her, Look, you are pregnant and shall give birth to a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, meaning God hears. For the faithful one has heard of your abuse. He shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live in the sight of all his kin. So Hagar named the living God who spoke to her, You are El Roy, for she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing God? Holy word, holy wisdom, thanks be to God. Just out of curiosity, how many people today had heard this story before? The story of Hagar. Great, so y'all have upgraded from your picture Bibles. I'm really glad. If you haven't, we have some extra Bibles with just words, and we are happy to give them to you. Maybe not with the same ceremony, but we want everyone to have the complete Bible. Maybe not the complete word, but the complete Bible, at least. Today's scripture tells the story of a woman who sees God and lives, but the God she sees is a mystery. This God does not act according to her hopes or our hopes. Her story reveals a lot about who we are as individuals and a society in in times of uncertainty and vulnerability, which you might say for mortals is all the time. Her story also reveals who God is to us when the way is far from clear and anything but easy. Hagar is the first female theologian. She is the first person in the Bible to name God. She names him, sorry, she names God, El Roy, meaning the one who sees me. The translation that we read this morning comes from Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, the Hebrew Bible scholar and the Episcopal priest, who a year ago published a series of Sunday readings emphasizing the role of women and female imagery in the Bible. The text she includes 
are overlooked in the preaching of most churches. And our staff decided that we would dedicate one Sunday a month to preaching from this lectionary in order to center women's stories and their God-given agency in a year when we are reminded how history has not done so. For me, one of the most valuable parts of this resource is the appendix, where Gaffney lists a whole index of non-male names for God. Listen to some of them. The one who sees, the one who speaks life, the rock who birthed us, the mother of the mountain, she who is majesty, she who is peace, the ark of safety, the womb of life, the wisdom of the ages. In today's translation, Gaffney renders alternate names for Lord. Like Hagar, who was the first woman to give God a name, Gaffney translates the divine names out of her own encounter with the presence and the word of God. The one who sees in this text knows where to find Hagar at the spring and knows her history without her ever having to share it. The inscrutable God gives Hagar counterintuitive advice to return to rather than flee abuse without explanation. The wellspring of life promises a multitude of descendants. These kinds of blessings are rare. They are only given to patriarchs. And the living God speaks to Hagar, but seeds the final word to her. Can we trust these titles for God? Can you and I trust a God that does not insist on being an all-powerful and having the last word? Can we trust a God that is compromised by God's own love for human beings? All of us, Abraham and Sarah, Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac, and the generations of oppressors and oppressed that follow. God loves them all. Let's cut to the chase. Do we trust Hagar and Dr. Gaffney's accounts of God? Would we allow ourselves to trust the testimony of women about the nature and the name of God? I'm sure everyone in this room is thinking, yes, of course. And yet, is that really what we see happening in Christians and Christianities today? Two weeks ago, an anti-abortion protester stood outside this church with a few graphic posters and a bullhorn. He had been incited by a large banner that we had hung um, around Easter time, and the same time that the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade had leaked. The lectionary readings for Easter were about the women who first encountered the resurrected Christ, and yet no one believed them, no one trusted them. Trust Women, the message that we put on this banner was very simply the gospel message of Easter. Like today's story where God reveals God's self to a woman, Christ's glory was revealed to women first. So two weeks ago, as I got out of my car, the man's voice boomed and said, don't enter this church, it's a fake church. It tells you to trust women when you should trust God. As if those things were mutually exclusive. Do we not 
learn faith by trusting people who trust God. The first disciples followed Jesus who trusted God. Do we not learn faith through our fellow church members and elders who themselves trust God? They show us the way. Would we have understood that the tomb was empty on Easter and Christ is risen, if not for the women who went to serve and prepare the body? They were, after all, the first to arrive and to see the evidence. Now, Christianity has a complicated relationship with women of faith. A flip through Dr. Gaffney's lectionary puts it all on display. Women's stories have offered a counter-narrative to divine imperialistic power. Rachel questions the rationale for the firstborn and its favoritism of giving the blessing to the firstborn. And therefore, she assists her younger son, who she thought was worthy, Jacob, in acquiring her husband's blessing. And later, after a massacre in Ramah, the image of Rachel weeping for her descendants is held up as a refusal to be consoled by the idea that the slaughter was God's will. Then there is Miriam, the sister of Moses, playing her tambourine outside the camp, praising the, that God is good and present with those on the margins. There is Tamar, who demonstrates more honor in the wake of her trauma than her brothers who set out to defend it. And there's the unnamed mother who saves her child from Solomon's sword. And there's Zilpah who protects the corpses of her sons from decay to protest their lynching. Even the women who have it all going for them, those who are considered blessed, speak out for the forgotten. Hannah goes to the temple to dedicate her son Samuel and sings, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from heaps of waste. And centuries later, a young girl named Mary, carrying the shame of illegitimate pregnancy, echoes Hannah's song in her own Magnificat. She proclaims, God lifts up the lowly and remembers us in mercy. Mary's son, Jesus, often doesn't admit when he's wrong or have a change in perspective, except when he meets a woman at a well, under a table, hanging onto his cloak or anointing his feet. Now, women are not paragons of morality. The means and the motives of all the characters in the Bible are questionable, just like ours. But what we see over and over is that women, when women are seen and heard, the divine plan shifts, or their witness challenges the prevailing narrative, just as Jesus often challenged the prevailing narrative. Maybe that is what was so scary to the protester when he said that trusting women is not trusting God. What if God's will was not a perfect, predetermined absolute, but rather responsibly and responsively determined through engagement with all parts of this creation that God loves. The testimony of women says that the will of God and the truth of God's word is more supple and interactive than our religious doctrines describe. Hagar's story illustrates this responsive and interactive and engaged God. Hagar is fleeing horrendous abuse. God sees her 
but does not offer Hagar salvation, only survival for the sake of her children. And no matter how many times I read this story, I still don't understand it. I still don't understand that one piece of advice. And yet Hagar praises God nonetheless, calling God a name that reflects the primacy of divine sight over divine salvation. The God that Hagar meets is in process, and so are the circumstances of her life and her son's life. One might even say that her son's life is God's creative protest to the supremacist attitudes of that time, and of our time too. Womanist theologian Dolores Williams drew a direct parallel between Hagar and the experience of African-American women. Hagar's story, women said, illuminates the intersectional oppression and identity of being black and female in our country. Her abuse by Abraham and Sarah mirrors the abuse perpetrated by white men and white women on black women and their children. Many black women, Williams writes, have testified that God helped them make a way out of no way. The gospel according to Hagar and the black women who followed her, as, women, as Williams tells it, is one of present survival more than some distant and future salvation. Now, how would Hagar's experience and testimony shed light on our current debate about women's bodies and our moral authority to make decisions for our families? Does God see us as we women are struggling for our own survival and the survival and flourishing of our future children? Are women free to choose survival and flourishing for these children. What can we do? What can we as a church and we as a society do to ensure not just reproductive choice, but reproductive justice through equal access to health care, education, and safe communities so that there is in fact reproductive freedom, especially for women of color who are impacted the most? These are the questions that we're actually going to explore as a community, and we've invited some area institutions as well, on Tuesday evenings from 7 to 9 in October and November, as we do a curriculum that was given to us by the Sacred Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. For friends, the truth about abortions is that women have them when we and those we parent are struggling to survive. There's all kinds of reasons we're struggling to survive. The data says this. In 2014, 75% of women who fo followed through with abortions are, were living in poverty and already had a child or two. And most had experienced a recent traumatic event like domestic abuse or job loss or loss of shelter. Many don't have health insurance or access to the most reliable forms of birth control. And many are also women of color who carry the highest risk of maternal and fetal death in our country. These are Hagar's daughters, but God sees them. We get stuck in our country in thinking about abortion because we are stuck between two absolutes in terms of how we see reality and morality. Process theologian Catherine Keller describes these opposites as the resolute and the dissolute. There is either religious fundamentalism or secular materialism, 
There is either moral certainty or secular relativism. God is either the only truth or there is no truth. Life is either sacred or it is just arbitrary existence. But when it comes down to it, wouldn't you say that truth and faith is something that evolves through discovery and through the experience of survival? At least that's been my experience. Keller describes truth as a process. And she describes this in a way that resonates with our whole Christian tradition when you step back and take a broader view of it. Keller says that Hagar's encounter in the wilderness stories offers a way forward for those who know both the abuse of religious authority but also the danger of existing in the desert alone without hope. She calls truth a way, not an end point. Those who suffer, Keller writes, come closer to a truth about the creation. The future is open, alarmingly, and promisingly. The way is not laid out in advance. Creation is itself in process. Our way forward has not yet been charted. There may be no trail before us at all. Sometimes one can only move forward in faith, which is in courage and in confidence, not in delusional certainty. Friends, that is the faith of Hagar, and it is the faith lived by women and the faith lived by many of us in this room today. It is a faith in a God of many names, one of which surely is the God who sees me. This is good news to me, and I hope it is to you too. In the name of crea the creator who sees both our chaos and our potential. And in the name of the risen Christ, who is seen through hope and through love. And in the sacred sight, the gift of the Spirit for all. Amen.